the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 3. The Anthropocene Epoch. Humanity's Impact on Earth's Climate and Ecosystems. In conversation with Colin Waters, Chair of the Anthropocene Working Group. The Anthropocene is a new geological epoch that began when humans started altering the planet with various forms of industrial and radioactive material in the 1950s. With us today to discuss what this designation means is Professor Colin Waters, Chair of the Anthropocene Working Group. He joins us from Leicester, England. Good morning, Colin, and welcome to the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you as well. Colin, please take a moment to tell us about yourself and your career. Obviously, I'm chair of the Anthropocene Working Group, but it's a long history uh, to get to this point. I I joined the British Geological Survey back 35 years ago. I had a long career there producing geological maps, partly in the UK, partly in North Africa. But one of my main roles during that time was, was working in urban areas in the UK. Uh, these are areas which have had a long industrial past. A lot of the mining is associated with these areas, lots of coal working. And I became interested in how you try to map and really identify the anthropogenic human-made deposits that we create. So it's not the normal thing that geologists look at. It's, you know, it's the, the, almost the archaeology of, of human impact. Um, but for us, it was still considered to be a geological unit. And in fact, because it covers much of the surface in these areas, it was the one aspect of the geology that that most people were were interested in. So um, that interest in these human-made deposits got me then involved with the Anthropocene Working Group. Back in 2011, I joined, straight away as secretary, actually. I then uh, was involved with a lot of the research with the group through to 2020 when I became the chair. So I have been chair since, since then. Uh, and my role throughout has been mostly helping with the production of scientific publications on the topic of the Anthropocene, but also coordinating the process of how we formally define this unit, because there's a standard process that we have to follow, and all those who work in the geological time scale have to go through the same process of trying to formalise uh, a definition for units. And uh, So we've been doing that now really the last four or five years, we've been in, in very great detail trying to find a specific site which can represent the stratotype, the location which best represents uh, the onset of the Anthropocene on the planet. Mm-hmm. Colin, tell me, what is the Anthropocene Working Group? Where is it located? Is it a government organization? Is it a private organization? Is it an academic organization? Yeah, so the origin actually is... Um, I'm partly involved with the origin, actually. We, we, um, a number of us in the Geological Society of London produced a paper in GSA Today, published in 2008, which was the first attempt by a geologist or a geological group to analyse the Anthropocene. I and mean, its concept goes back to 2000 with Paul Crutzen, uh, who's a Nobel laureate atmospheric chemist. But geologists hadn't really, even though it was a geological term, it hadn't been analysed by geologists until we looked at it in 2008. Uh, as a result of that... The, the international body responsible for, for un, uh, understanding the stratigraphy of, of um, these terms, which we use to define uh, geological time, 
established the working group. It's part of something called the Subcommission on Quaternary Stratigraphy, which covers the last 2.6 million years of, of the planet's history. So we were formalized to set up uh, this group. I didn't join initially until 2011, so for the first two years I wasn't involved in this. But the chair, Jan Zalazevich, who was the lead author of that paper, was asked to form, form this group and select people who he thought were going to be useful to helping to define the Anthropocene. And what was unusual was he didn't just stick to geologists. He realized that to understand the Anthropocene, it's not just the impact on geology we need to consider. It's also other aspects of how we can determine uh, scales of human impact, looking at the, um, the involvement of archaeologists as well as geologists, historians, because obviously this is a time where we have historical records uh, which run in parallel with the, the records in the geology. So it was a, a quite a wide group. It's, it's been um, a varying membership over time, but it's typically about 35 people. We all provide our time freely. We, we don't get any payment for this. The, the working group has no budget. We are just academics who find the topic extremely interested, inter- interesting and want to spend our time uh, understanding it. Because of that lack of budget, that, that has meant that the, the process of trying to find the the golden spike section at the end, which is quite an expensive procedure, mm-hmm. has taken a little bit longer than perhaps we would have wanted. Tell us about the work of the Anthropocene Working Group. And again, it sounds as though you're, it's an international group. Are the members of the Working Group, uh, of course, you're in Britain, Are what other countries and nationalities are represented in the Working Group? Well, yes, it is, it is meant to be international in scope. So obviously a lot from North America, uh, a lot from Europe, some from Asia as well, particularly China and Japan, sort of gen- generally the main focus of where most of the research has been done as well. But uh, we've, we've had membership that's sort of varied with time, but, but it's meant to be a global reach. And, uh, you know, in, in part, it's, it's, most of the work has been done in English, but it's quite good that we've got membership from places like Spain and Germany who can then help translate and, and broadcast that information in those countries as well. So, um, but it is meant to be international in scope. Is there a time limit? Do you have a goal to submit a report or to make a declaration that the Anthropocene epoch has, has begun on a certain time? Could you give us a sense of where your work is leading to? Is this something that, for instance, the United Nations might be involved with? In, in other words, who does the Anthropocene Working Group report to? We were initiated as part of the International Commission on Stratigraphy, which is a it's an international body that that really governs uh, the nomenclature, the, the terminology that we use to classify geological time. I see. Um, so that that's the le- that's the level it's at, and it, you know it's a, it's a significant in geology. It's a very significant level, uh, and, they, and they in effect govern the nomenclature we use. So if you're using terms like Jurassic and Cretaceous. For geologists, they have a very specific meaning, mm-hmm. and it's this group that's actually responsible for the definition of these terms. So we, we follow their protocols. The, the working groups are, are typically set up on four-year cycles, so you can you can reapply to carry on working subsequently for another four years. But we've been having um, strong communications from the ICS that really we have to have a conclusion to this by August of next year, uh, which is um, the end of this current four-year cycle. There's a major conference. Uh, it's a congress in Busan in Korea in August next year. 
It's the International Geological Congress. Uh, ICS wished to have that re- the, the decision reported at that meeting. I see. There's, there's actually, um, beyond our work, once, once we've actually submitted the report, which I'm currently working on at present and should be submitted in the autumn, it then has to go through three levels of voting uh, at levels above us. So our our, our body that above us is, is known as the Subcommission on Quaternary Stratigraphy. So these are people who are interested in the geology of the last 2.6 million years. Mm-hmm. They will vote as to whether they approve the report that we submit. Mm-hmm. But it has to be a supermajority vote of 60% or more approval. If that happens, it then goes to the next level, which is the International Commission on Stratigraphy. That has an executive plus uh, each one of the subcommission members going right through the whole of geological time, you know, back, you know, more than a billion years back through history, will also have a vote on this. And again, it has to be 60% supermajority for it to go to the final level, which is the International Union of Geological Sciences. Um, and they have to then decide as to whether to approve it or not. So it can fail at any of those three stages. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's the International Union of Geological Sciences which would have the final vote and the final approval yes. yeah. as regards so they, they the can cancel it. I so see. they can cancel it any, uh, during their, even, even if it's been approved previously by the other two levels, they can decide that they do not wish to ratify it. I see. Okay. Well, let's come back to the actual process because I was fascinated in reading about your work you had identified originally 12 sites around the world, which was subsequently reduced to nine, and you referred to these sites as golden spikes. Tell us what you mean by a golden spike site in trying to determine the impact of, the, of man's effect on the earth and climate. What do you mean by calling these sites golden spikes? Technically, they're, they're known as Global Boundary Stratotype Sections and Points, or GSSPs. Uh, so it's, it's a physical point in a section somewhere on the planet that represents the stratotype, the ideal place for defining the boundary of that unit. Mm-hmm. So quite often it's in uh, cliff faces, and these, these are sites which are, are conserved. And they'll, they'll have uh, a, a golden spike marker put in. And the term actually comes from, in, as you know, in, in America where... You were joining the two, the Western yes. and Eastern railroads. At the point where they met, they hammered in a golden spike right. to mark the meeting point. And the idea is these golden spikes represent the, the, the physical location of what, in effect, is, is a, a point of time, but represented physically in geological materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in our case, we'd, we'd spent really from 2009 working through the first part of the process was deciding, did we feel there was reality to the Anthropocene? Did it justify actually being a geological time interval? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the analysis we were doing then was just to determine that. Um, once we did decide it was true, then we had to then follow the protocols which are provided by the International Commission on Strictly. How you go about defining sites is, is to have one specific golden spike section somewhere on the planet and it has a number of criteria you have to follow. So it has to be sort of continuous succession of deposits with no gaps. It shouldn't be disturbed. Uh, it should be a site that's freely accessible to people in the future to do further research. It needs to be easily accessible, but also conserved. Ideally, you want to be able to have a, a good knowledge about the time scale through that section with enough material below and above the boundary to, to classify the changes that happen. 
So we were given, in effect, free range because the whole planet is showing the Anthropocene. It doesn't matter where you go, you will see evidence of the Anthropocene. But what we had to do was try and find out where on the planet would be the best places. And what we wanted to do as well is have diversity, both in location and in environments as well. And uh, what we, we managed to do is get funding from somebody called the, the House de Kulturendevelt, the House of World Cultures in Berlin, which is actually a cultural establishment, which was fascinated in our work uh, and was able to get funding to, in effect, follow our research, but help then with some of the an analyses that was being done. It, it was that money which allowed us to go out and say to people, if you're interested in what we're doing, would you put forward your site as potentially being one of these golden spike sections? So we had um, about a year or so of bringing together all the sites, agreeing yes. on what budgets were available. Many of these people were doing their work for specific reasons. They were trying to do environmental um, analysis for, say, biological change in an area because of pollution. Yes. What we were able to do was say, we want you to do extra bits of work so that every single site is trying to do analyses of the similar sorts of markers. Right. You saw things like you know, plutonium, bomb spike, changes in amounts of nitrogen, particulates from burning fossil fuels, changes to the biology of the sections. These sort of things we wanted everybody to try and do consistently so we could have a sort of global pattern of how humans were changing the planet and, and actually seeing it in physical sections. Um, and, and so then 2019... We managed to get these 12 sites to agree to, to try and get the work done. I was the aim of getting it done by 2022, knowing we had this deadline by 2024 to actually produce a proposal. So we started the work in January 2020. So all the 12 sites started to do their work. Yes. Of course, then the pandemic happened. Um, and there was some quite heroic work, really, the way that they managed to, uh, in some cases, still manage to get you know the material they needed, the, the call to collect from lakes, for example, they managed to do that uh, under very difficult circumstances. And in other occasions, having to do laboratory work at a time of the pandemic was very difficult. Uh, I credit the team that by the autumn of last year, it all done the, the requisite analyses, it produced the, the final paper with all of the data presented in it and submitted that to a journal for peer review. So it all took, you know, less than three years. I see. Now tell me, of those 12 potential Golden Spike sites around the world, you were telling me that of the 12, three were eliminated and you were left with nine finalists. Could you tell us what the nine yeah. finalist Golden Spikes were? And you also mentioned that of those nine Golden Spikes, two of them were actually here in the San Francisco Bay Area. But could you, could you tell us where all, uh, all yeah. nine of them were? Actually, one of, one of the sites was one of the ones that was eliminated. So San Francisco Estuary, the, the bay itself, there was a, a cord taken from the southern part of the bay. Um, unfortunately, I mean, with this, you, you have to put down a, a core to a certain depth to take out the material. This was all done on the assumption of a sort of standard rate of sedimentation uh, of the material in the bottom of the bay. Uh, when the core was finally analysed, and it was two metres thickness of core, it was only down to 1950, approximately. So what it hadn't done was gone down the, the Holocene, the, the Anthropocene. What you need to have is 
not only at the boundary itself but below it oh, to show what the the Holocene looks in comparison to the Anthropocene. So in, it hadn't really gone down deep enough. But also some of the problems with, with dating the succession, it, it didn't have annual growth increments, which some of the sections we've got do. Mm-hmm. So it was always uncertain as to what the age of sediments were. But what it was really good at doing was was providing evidence of this uh, transfer of species across the planet because of this sort of port association of San Francisco um, with particularly along other parts of the Pacific, so from China and Japan, um, boats consistently of the container ships bringing over goods to San Francisco Bay, um, and uh, organisms that are attached to the boats sure. or actually contained in the ballast water being released into the bay it means that uh, I think something like 260 different uh, species have been found hmm. in the bay, which are uh, introduced. It's, it's known as neobiota. Um, and in fact, in certain cases, uh, some of the analyses were suggesting that you know, 97% of all the species being found are actually introduced to the bay. Oh. Um, so a huge, huge percentage. So it's a, it's a very yes. cosmopolitan biology you're finding there now. So that, that was particularly interesting, but unfortunately, it, it didn't prove to be the the best of sites. So, but nearby to that is uh, something called Searsville Lake, and that is um, it's a, actually a reservoir that was constructed um, and I think started to fill with sediment about 1900, mm-hmm. um, and it very very rapidly accumulated um, sediments, which in effect are, are telling a story of what was happening in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, through from 1900 to the present day. So a lot of the, the signals that you see in the sediments are not necessarily coming from in direct area, but being introduced from the atmosphere. And so things like the, the bomb spike, you know, the, the detonations of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. um, they, were, they were picking up the signals from that early sort of 1945 through to 1948, the, the testing that was being done in, in and New Mexico in particular, oh, yes. uh, those signals were being, being visible in the sediment in, in Searsville as well. But also uh, burning of uh, fossil fuels were creating little particles of carbon, uh, which are very distinctive in their shape. And uh, they started to appear in the sediments as well around about 1950. Lots of different things were happening. It, it, it made it look a, a very useful site, particularly because you could link seasonal variations in the climate uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area to the sort of the, the coarseness of the sediment. So in, in wintertime, when there's more rain, you tend to get slightly coarser sediments. During drier intervals, it tend to be finer. And you could mm-hmm. almost count these like tree rings and pick up the seasons and uh, oh. then measure the chemistry in, in each of these seasonal variations to show you know, how, how what were global changes, things like the... the, the plutonium from detonation of nuclear weapons, how they were increasing with time in the 1950s. And so, Colin, what were the, so that that one Jasper Lake, that, uh, that one yeah. site made it into the final nine. Tell us the, the other eight that made it into the final nine. Where were they located? Uh, another one in the, yeah, so another one that's in the United States actually is uh, something called the West Flower Garden Bank. And it's, uh, it's actually a, a coral reef in the Gulf of Mexico, it's about 180 kilometers off from the coast of Texas. Yes. So quite an unusual situation. It's a quite a distant coral reef. It's not like the ones you tend to think about in Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, it's quite a long way from direct human influence, which is why we picked the site, actually. And then... Um, that, one's, that, that, that one's, again, a, a lovely one because it, 
the coral show annual growth rings, a bit like tree rings, um, and they're, they're sort of on the sort of centimeter scale. So there's a lot of material to do the analysis we need to do to work out things like again, it's the bomb spike related to nuclear detonations, but also changes to the the, the temperature of the oceans. It picked up a record of about one degree centigrade increase since 1950. Mm-hmm. It, it's the changes also in things like nitrogen uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, particularly coming from uh, huge amounts of fertilizers getting into the Mississippi River and being introduced into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. The signal of nitrogen just goes up very yes. uh, dramatically from about 1950 onwards. And could but you interesting, just... even also pick local things such as mm-hmm. um, um, the, the, the um, hydrocarbons industry, you know, mm-hmm. the, the oil gas extraction that you get in the Gulf of Mexico, the drilling mud is very mm. rich in barium, and we were picking up the barium signal in the coral as well. So it's showing that some of the, the muds from that work was being sort of distributed around mm. the Gulf of Mexico at the same time. So, and just tell us where the where the other seven were located. Just uh, just tell us the by country. Right, so, um, the the most distant one would be the Antarctic Peninsula. So that was in glacial ice. Yes. Uh, in Europe, we've got uh, a cave in northern Italy called Ernesto Cave. Um, but also um, an anthropogenic uh, deposit in uh, Vienna, the city of Vienna in Austria. Mm-hmm. There is a upland peat area in Poland. Um, also uh, a marine that's offshore uh, succession in the Baltic Sea. Um, so that's sort of 240 meter water depth sediments in the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Asia, we've got a, a lake in Sihalongguan, which is um, in China, close to the Korean border, mm-hmm. so way up in the northeast of China, um, off the coast of Japan, it's Beppu Bay, uh, and another coral reef um, off the northeast coast of Australia. I see. So, um, But the, 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 one, the one site I haven't mentioned is the one actually in the end we decided to select as the candidate site. Okay. And that is Crawford Lake in Ontario, Canada. I see. So uh, just to summarize then, of the nine potential Golden Spike sites, uh, there were several in North America, a number in Europe, and three in Asia. And the one that you finally decided as being the Golden Spike was Crawford Lake in Ontario, Canada. Tell us us why that site, Crawford Lake in Ontario, Canada, qualifies as the Golden Spike to determine the Anthropocene epoch? Well, I suppose that, I mean, the first point to make is it's a very hard decision. And we had to go through uh, three rounds of voting to actually select that site as the predominant one. And there, there's a number of reasons why I think it stood above any of the others. The sediment itself, when, you, when it's cored, has this most beautiful seasonal um, growth rings, accumulation rings of sediment, uh, just like tree rings, essentially. Uh, so each season would layer down in the summer months, uh, a very pale calcite-rich uh, layer. And then in, in the autumn, it would be more organic-rich, lots of diatom materials, much dark clay material. And so these would be happening seasonally year and year and year. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's, not, it's not a regular pattern. It's actually variable depending on different, say, climatic conditions. Uh, and so... Uh, it's more like a barcode. It's sort of an irregular pattern of, of uh, these layers. Uh, and you can almost look at them and say exactly where you are in the succession. Uh, and certainly you can count back with time mm. and know ex- exactly which year you're looking at. Um, but there are a number of events that you can look at as well, which allow you to confirm the dating of this. So, again, we go back to the, 
the nuclear detonations, these above ground detonations, nuclear weapons um, that started in 1945, but really escalated about 1952 and peaked in 1963. That signal is very clear in Crawford like. Mm-hmm. Local changes, which uh, are, are well known as well, things like the, the Dutch elm disease, which wiped out a lot of the trees um, across most of North America and Europe as well. Uh, we know when that happened in the Crawford Lake area, uh, and you see a sudden drop in the pollen uh, appearing in the lake sediment. Mm-hmm. And again, that sort of times with when uh, we know that Dutch elm disease happened across that area. There are changes to things like concentrations, again, of, of nitrogen, um, because unfortunately, burning of fossil fuels in particular, but also changes in agriculture with lots of fertilizer being used and, and nitrogen-based fertilizers mean that the amount of nitrogen in the atmosphere has increased. And that, that's the thing that sort of leads to like, algal blooms in many lakes. Mm-hmm. That nitrogen concentration does change in the lake as well. And it's a very clear 1950s signal. I mentioned like the, these um, uh, fuel ash materials that come from burning fossil fuels, these little carbon particles, again, very clearly seen at Crawford Lake. I see. So at this point, you now have the Golden Spike. It's Crawford Lake in Ontario, Canada. Yeah. And that Golden Spike then has to, is subject to a three-level approval process in order to be finally voted, voted on in uh, next fall in 2024 in Busan, Korea, by the International Geological Society. What is the, the title of the organization again? The final announcement would be by the International Union of Geological Sciences, IUGS. IUGS. But, but actually, the, vote, the, vote, the voting will be going on really throughout the year since our submission. It, it, it takes a, 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 at least two months per round of voting. Yeah. Now, assuming that all of the voting goes according to, as you hope that it does, and that they accept mm-hmm. that, that the golden spike is there in Crawford Lake – what impact will that have, for instance, on the politics of climate change? What will the what will the practical impact be in terms of saying that, you know, climate change, which has been political football in, in certain countries, particularly here in the United States, we now have geological proof that there is this new epoch, the Anthropocene epoch, which has now been through rigorous testing, has now been recognized by the the governing body of uh, international geology. What impact do you think that that's going to have in terms of our climate control and developing climate control policies? It it can only help, I guess. Well, obviously, the the work we're doing is specifically to identify geological time intervals. So it's it's looking at that specifically. And we say that there's many criteria that that allow us to recognize the onset of the Anthropocene. So some of it is these novel particulates, you know, things like microplastics is a very significant component of what we're looking at. This introduction of these new human-made materials into the environment. It's the change to the geochemistry of the planet related to various types of, of pollution, and that includes things like the radiogenics from the destination of nuclear weapons, but also industrial pollution sources and burning fossil fuels. These all change the chemistry of the planet. And the combinations of that and climate change are also changing the, the biology of the planet. You know, just the way that we're completely modifying the biology through extinctions of species, transfer of species across the planet, but also domestication. So the fact that two-thirds of the, the biomass of, of mammals on the planet 
are the species that, that essentially are domesticated species. A third of it is we humans, and only about four percent is wildlife. Mm. You know, so mm. we completely modified the biology of the planet. Climate actually is, is if anything, this the sort of the slow later contender with regards to this because the onset of significant climate change has really started in 1975. Uh, there's a bit of a time lag because obviously most of the things we've been seeing start around about 1950. But the, the onset of significant climate change, temperature globally at least, have risen about 1.2 degrees since 19, 1975. Part of the delay is probably human-caused anyway because we were putting so much uh, pollution into the atmosphere lots of aerosols, including like sulfur dioxide, it actually led to temperatures staying pretty much stable from about 1930 through to 1975. It's really only when we started to, in effect, clean the atmosphere and get rid of a lot of these pollutants that we then start to see the temperatures start to rise as, as, a, as a result of particularly all the greenhouse gases that have been emitted into the atmosphere. How ironic. Um, but, so it, it is, you know, and uh, you know, you know, you can't you can't say that we we shouldn't get rid of that pollution source because it's you know essential for our health that we we did get rid of things like acid rain, uh, the small particulates, you know, the soot particulates that we're breathing in, and, and are harmful as well. So you know, we should be aiming to try and get rid of that. But mm-hmm. the the important implication is that we have increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. By a third, you know, it is. It's now the highest it's been for about three million years. Mm. You know, four hundred and fifteen, four hundred and twenty parts per million of carbon dioxide. Three million years ago, when it was as high as this, temperatures were about two or three degrees warmer than they are now. Sea levels, what ten to twenty meters higher. We've changed this the atmosphere, atmospheric composition of, of greenhouse gases so rapidly that the planet is still trying to catch up. And the, the trajectory we are on is one of two to three degrees warming and 10 to 20 metres of sea level rise, and unless we can start to bring carbon dioxide levels okay. down again. Mm-hmm. And well, that's a difficult one to do because, you know, we, we can try, you know, we, we, first of all, we need to stop emit, emitting these greenhouse gases, which we, I think we're starting to think towards that way, um, but we're still lagging behind in actually putting it into practice you know the, the levels of these greenhouse gases are still rising and that will just mean that that temperatures will get even higher into the future but then one of the big problems we have and, and will be faced with is that a lot of the carbon dioxide has gone into the oceans and it's a store it's basically a reservoir for all of the carbon dioxide um, and as we try and moderate the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere if we bring it down then we'll just get more of the carbon dioxide coming from the oceans back into the atmosphere so it's a situation that's going to be long term, you know, and I think a lot of modelers and climatic modelers are looking towards, you know, this being a, a transformative change to the chemistry of the atmosphere, and that looks a long term change to temperatures. You know, we are not looking at typical uh, Holocene temperatures that we've been used to in the past as a civilization. Our our species is, has developed across the planet in a time of moderate consistency in temperatures mm-hmm. and sea levels. And now we're looking at this very rapid change happening uh, over only a few decades. Mm-hmm. And this transformation is something that, that we've never experienced in its current form. And it, it will it will become more significant with time. Well, Colin, so, there, Colin though, though we're not here to we're not uh, here to sort of uh, be an action group to say, you know, we should avoid climate change. There, there are certain things which the Anthropocene tells you Exactly. You, There's certain you know, things that it tells you, know, you. Humans have trans- transformed the planet. 
I see. Well, Colin, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about the Anthropocene Working Group? The key thing is that as a group, we've looked through many, many um, sources of scientific information and determined that there is a reality that humans we know have, have had an, an impact on the planet over many, many thousands of years, but that was a slow, progressive change. But in the 1950s, there's been this great acceleration in our influence on the planet, and it's, it's been global and very, very dramatic. And it's, it, in effect, a response to population growth from 2.5 billion through to 8 billion we have now, um, the consumerism associated with that growth, the, the increased burning of fossil fuels, uh, and also the globalization um, of the transfer of, of goods around the planet, but then also species around the planet as well. So uh, the conclusion really is that humans have completely modified um, the geology of the planet. And, and being recorded in the geology means it's a permanent legacy. So well into the future, people looking back towards the present day will see this very dramatic change to the geology of the planet and wonder what happened, what caused all of this. And the recognition is it was us. It was us. Well, Colin, how can our listeners follow you? Well, I mean, if you Google uh, Anthropocene Working Group, where our main website is, uh, is actually catered as part of the, if you go to quaternary.stratigraphy.org and look under working groups, the Anthropocene Working Group is there. And if, if you do a, a search, it will come up with one of the leading results. It gives you information about what we're up to. We have the annual newsletters are in there, so it tells you all about the publications we've been involved in, a lot of the work we've done. Uh, once we've got the results, uh, that will also appear on the website as well. I see. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, for shedding light on this fascinating and uh, groundbreaking, no pun intended, effort that, that, you, <laughs> that you've been involved in. Uh, obviously, I, I'm not making light of it. It's uh, it's epoch-long process that you're that you're trying to record here again thank you so much for your work thank you for joining us today and we'll my pleasure and lovely talking to you as well same here and for our listeners today's episode is number 428 listen to us on apple podcast spotify amazon music 18 platforms in total and join our listener audience that spans 65 countries this has been the san francisco experience podcast with jim herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.